Hello, and welcome to the Real Beal Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Beal. My wife told me that I'm so full of random information that I should start a podcast as a release. So I did. Each week, I'll be discussing a topic that I find interesting, and hopefully, you'll find it interesting too. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Real Beal Podcast. Finally releasing on our normal schedule once again. There's so much that's happened since the last episode was released, and I want to talk about some of those things. If you didn't know, there's a link on the homepage of the podcast and in the description of every episode that lets you submit suggestions for topics and guests for the podcast. So let me know what or who you think would be interesting on the podcast, and if I agree, I'll make my best effort to make it happen. I officially had my last first day of school. That's right, the semester has officially started, which means that I'm in my last year of law school. It's exciting, but also just wild to think about. I can remember just hoping to be accepted to the law school that I wanted, and now I'm getting ready to graduate and take the bar. My last first day was also very anticlimactic. I'm not taking actual classes this semester. Instead, I was accepted into the residency program through the law school, where I get credit for a full-time internship. Really cool opportunity, and I'm very happy to be participating in it. I was accepted into the student volunteer program with the Office of the Principal Legal Advisor for the Chief Counsel of the Department of Homeland Security in Dallas. Let me translate. I was accepted as a student attorney with the Department of Homeland Security's ICE Prosecutor's Office in Dallas. It's a very interesting position, especially considering that I plan on opening a private immigration practice. My job this semester is to assist ICE in handling motions to reopen, motions to reconsider, motions to terminate, and removal proceedings. Basically, I'm doing the exact opposite job that I'm going to be doing after graduation. But I applied for and ultimately accepted this position for a few different reasons. First, I needed to have a certain number of what's called experiential learning credits to graduate. Basically, I need to have enough hours doing actual lawyer things, not just attending class. And there's a few different ways to do this. You can participate in a clinic, you can do part-time internships, or you can do this full residency program. So I chose the residency program because it really fits our family's child care schedule. And second, there are only two placements for immigration law, Catholic Charities and ICE. I applied for both. Catholic Charities said they'd love to set up an interview and then completely ghosted me. ICE was quick to respond. They're to the point, and they offered me the position right there in the interview. So I took it. Didn't really have a whole lot of options, and I was running out of time. Finally, this position gives me an opportunity to gain an enormous amount of experience in immigration court before I graduate. I already have a lot of experience in other aspects of immigration law. Affirmative applications like visas and such, refugee and asylum law, and advising immigrants on immigration effects of criminal activity. Now I'll get to question witnesses, make arguments in court, and generally get comfortable in the courtroom. Ultimately, this will make me a better lawyer for my future clients, and that's really why I chose to do it. I'm also doing an independent study this semester, which is just fascinating. I'm studying legal philosophy. 
though I already think it's going to shift more towards morality and the law. I wanted to understand how different legal philosophies influence how judges make decisions. But now I'm more interested in how morality does and should influence the law. And I'll talk about this in later episodes. But I want to dive into the big topic. I'd like to address the situation in Afghanistan in the only way that I feel I'm qualified. Immigration law. I don't want to comment on anything political, nor do I want to evaluate the decision to withdraw. I only want to present some information regarding the role that the immigration system is going to play in the aftermath. There's a lot of public concern right now for the Afghans who assisted the U.S. forces during the war in Afghanistan. Are they going to be targeted, killed, tortured, or who knows what? What can the U.S. do to help them? There are two basic ways for these people to seek help from the United States. First, they can apply for refugee status. If approved, the U.S. arranges their travel plans and helps them move to the U.S. with their families. They get a work permit and are eligible for permanent residency. There's a few requirements. One, they have to be located outside of the United States. Two, they have to be of a special humanitarian concern to the United States. Three, they have to demonstrate that they were persecuted or that they fear future persecution because of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Four, they cannot be firmly resettled in another country already. And five, they have to be admissible to the United States. The big issue here is that they have to be referred to the United States for consideration as a refugee and then interviewed abroad before they can ever come to the United States. Second option is they can arrive in the United States and apply for asylum. The obvious issue here is they have to get to the United States in the first place. Kind of hard to do when the U.S. Embassy has been evacuated and everybody's rushing to the Kabul airport to try to leave the country. The same basic requirements apply for asylum as for refugees, except there's no need to be of a special humanitarian concern, and obviously you don't have to apply from outside of the United States. Now, the government has announced that Afghans can be paroled or let into the United States while their case is being processed because of the special humanitarian issues involved. Now, this parole is not granting them any kind of immigration status. It's just saying, hey, you're in a very tough situation. We're just going to go ahead and let you in so we can process your case instead of making you wait in that dangerous situation for your case to be processed. There's just one really huge issue right now. No matter how someone tries to come to the United States, either as a refugee or through the asylum process, there's a cap on how many refugees can be admitted into the United States each fiscal year. For the current fiscal year, there's a limit of 62,500 people. It was originally only 15,000, but President Biden raised it shortly after taking office. These 62,500 are broken down based on the region of origin. 22,000 refugees from Africa, 6,000 from East Asia, 4,000 from Europe and Central Asia, 5,000 from Latin America and the Caribbean, and then 13,000 from South Asia. Another 12,500 spots were unallocated and are available to anyone. 
Now, why is this a problem? The United Nations has warned that up to 500,000 Afghans could flee the country by the end of the year alone. And there are 2.2 million Afghan refugees already in neighboring countries. And 3.5 million people have been forced to flee their homes within Afghanistan's borders. The U.S. says that it has already facilitated the evacuation of more than 110,000 people from the Kabul airport, the only operational airport in the country, since August 14th. It's not clear how many of those are Afghan nationals, but the point is there are way more refugees than there are spots available in the United States. Now, the new fiscal year begins on October 1st. And Biden has said that he plans on setting the new limit at 125,000 people. He's not designated how those spots are going to be distributed, but it's still not even close to addressing the issue here. Now, is it the United States' job to accept all of these refugees? That's a question of policy that I'm not going to address. Is this humanitarian crisis the United States' fault? I'm going to leave that to you to decide. But the point is, the United States has handcuffed itself when it comes to helping these people. Now, some more issues. There is no cost to apply for refugee status to come to the United States. But there is a cost to apply for asylum status once you've gotten to the United States. The other issue. How could you possibly be interviewed for refugee status if you are still in Afghanistan when the U.S. has left. Now, of course, it's possible to do these interviews over the phone or through video conferencing, but how are you going to do that? How are you going to get that set up? The NGOs are largely unable to operate. The U.S. government has no role in Afghanistan right now. There's really not a whole lot of options there to set up these interviews. The second is how many people are going to even pursue that when they already have the fear of retaliation from the Taliban in the first place. If they're already worried about being targeted, why are they going to risk drawing more attention to themselves by seeking to enter into this process? So that's the big issue there. The second issue is these cases can take a long time to process. The average time for a refugee case from applying outside the United States takes six months to process. That's a long time. It might not sound like it. That might sound pretty short when it comes to a legal process. But when you consider that you are in Afghanistan, the United States has withdrawn You are in fear for your life from retaliation from the Taliban. And you've got to wait six months to find out whether or not you're even going to be approved. That's a long time. That's longer than many people could bear to wait. Now, when it comes to applying for asylum, the affirmative asylum, once you've gotten to the United States, you've been paroled in. As of right now, that can take up to a year. A year after arriving in the United States. Now, that's going to get a lot longer. 
as these people come to the United States and with these raised levels. When it was only 15,000 people, it was about two to three months, sometimes up to six months. When it got raised up to the 62,500, these times stretched out to six months to a year wait. Now the limit is at 125,000 people. I'm sure you can see the direction this wait time is going. And as more and more people apply from outside the United States and inside the United States, this process is only going to take longer. Doesn't sound like a huge deal, but here's the big one. If you are paroled into the United States, like these people will be, and they've been given permission to be paroled in, you do not get a work permit. If you don't have a work permit, you can't legally work. You cannot receive any type of government assistance. There's no food stamps. There's no housing vouchers. So what are you going to do while your case is being processed on the short end, six months to a year? How do you survive? How do you, you know, provide for your family? And I understand there are nonprofits who will provide for many of these people. But the system right now is not set up to operate in a way that would support this massive influx of refugees. It's just not ready. And a big reason for that is the fact that the number of people who could be admitted into the United States was decreased every single year of Trump's presidency. And originally, Biden left the decrease in place. He did not raise it until about three or four months ago. So the system isn't prepared. The process takes a long time. It can cost a lot of money if you do it from inside the United States, and it could be very dangerous to do it from outside of the United States. You see how this all comes together? Is the crisis our fault? I'll let you decide. Do we have a responsibility to help all of these people? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is our immigration policy and the history of our treatment of asylum seekers and of refugees within the last 10 years, maybe even 20 years, has put the system in a position that makes it very difficult when you have these big influx of people. We want to raise the limits. We raise the limits to 125000 for the next fiscal year. But that doesn't fix the problem. 500,000 people might leave by the end of the year. 125,000, while it's a start, won't be able to address that, especially considering most of them won't go to people from Afghanistan. 125,000 people might be higher than it has been, but just setting the number higher doesn't fix the system. It just makes backlogs longer. It allows more people to be accepted, but it doesn't do anything for the nonprofits or for the refugee resettlement program. It doesn't fix that problem. It just says we're going to try it for more people. It's a tough situation. There's a lot broken about the asylum and refugee system in the United States. I don't know how to fix it. That's the big problem. No one really knows how to fix it. Or if they have good ideas, no one's willing to invest the money and the time to do so. And that's what puts us in this situation.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Real Beal Podcast. Hopefully this episode has made you consider the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan in a new way. Should there be limits on the number of refugees that the United States accepts? What should that limit be? Does it make a difference if the refugees are caused by the United States' actions? I hope you'll think about these questions when you hear about the crisis in Afghanistan. I hope you'll also consider some of these questions when you hear about the crisis at the border. I didn't talk about it, but there are still thousands of people at the U.S.-Mexico border attempting to apply for asylum inside the United States. Recent decisions by federal judges, including the Supreme Court, have kept the Remain in Mexico policy in place, requiring people who want to apply for asylum to do so from Mexico if they arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border. Not refugee status, where it's free, but asylum, where you have to pay. The Real Bill Podcast is an individual project. I am the writer, host, editor, producer, sound technician, snack director, and dog walker. But most importantly, thanks to my wife, Lily, for giving me the motivation to create this podcast in the first place. Thanks for listening. Suggest a topic or a guest in the link in the description. I'll see you next time. Keep it real, Beal.